0: The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome to the Thursday edition of Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, right across from me is I wanna, the only Tammy Underwoods. Ah, damn.
1: Hi, everybody.
0: So we're doing a two-parter with this one, is what you told me, this Charles yeah. Schmid dude.
1: Charles Schmid.
0: I'm just interested in hearing the story with a fucking name like Schmid. It, it's got to be good. It's, it's got to be good. Yeah,
1: it's all right. <laughs> just all right? Well, you know,
0: you know I playing? titled
1: it the foolish and arrogant man who didn't think to keep his mouth shut. Sweet. Yeah.
0: I like that. Okay. You ready? Go for it.
1: Okay. Picture it. Tucson, Arizona.
0: Oh, damn. I thought for sure you were going to say Sicily. I know. 1948.
1: 1966. (laughs) On March 4th, Time and Life magazines, now remember they were separate corporations back then, Uh took what would have been a tragic local story and turned it into a national atrocity. Reporters from across the country swarmed into the little southwest town. However, it was a photo published in Life magazine that drew in the international news outlets. Everyone was captivated by the dark and menacing desert scene where three young teenagers had gone missing. That's what catapulted Charles Howard Schmid Jr. or Smitty to his friends into the depths of infamy. Schmidt was arrested on November 10th, 1965, just four months before the article was published. He had just married a 15-year-old girl that he went on a blind date with and barely knew. One thing's for sure, this is one of the first cases where a suspect was found guilty in a court of public opinion before they stepped foot in front of a judge and jury. Hold
0: on, hold on, hold on. I don't like your attitude over there. Why? Why? Because you're you're sitting there talking about, he married a 15-year-old girl that he barely knew.
1: What's wrong with that? Okay, excuse me. That's not how I said it, but okay. He's a
0: damn pig. Look at
1: him. That is not what I said.
0: Rotten son of a bitch. Maybe they were in love. You ever think about that? No, okay. I
1: I, I know how this story ends, so yeah. he,
0: He has the right candy and a van. You never know. Just saying.
1: He had Wi-Fi before Wi-Fi was a thing? Yes. Yes. <laughs>
0: hey, little girl, I've got Wi-Fi and candy. Yeah. <laughs> got a pair of ear pods for you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. <clears throat> oh, dang, I swallowed the water wrong.
0: It's terrible up. when you swallow wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this story itself is so intense that we are going to have to break it up into two episodes. Okay? So... Schmid was a small he had was small in stature. In fact, he only stood about five foot four inches tall, barefoot.
0: Jesus Christ, man.
1: However, he made himself appear taller by three inches because he put tin cans and rags in the stack-heeled cowboy boots he wore. He had natural reddish-brown hair, which he dyed black. He covered his face in pancake makeup. Applied a fake beauty mark on his left cheek and whitened his lips. I'll get into this a little bit more later.
0: <coughs> he sounds like a circus clan at this point. I'm serious. Yeah, you should see his picture. I mean, ser- I, I, in my head, I hear. Dun, 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 Wasn't
1: that your wedding song?
0: That was my wedding song when I married uh, ex wife number, number four. Yeah. Because <laughs> she is. is she, I always say she was a midget, but she's still alive, so she is. Dun, 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 I was circus, say, did midget. she grow? No. No, like, and I tried watering her and everything, and with as much bullshit as I had to take, you'd think that she'd grow. But no, no, she's still like I don't know, like three foot tall or whatever how tall she is.
1: Three foot tall, and bulletproof.
0: (laughs) Pretty much, man. She's a. I I, got to give Trish credit for this, man. She's one badass bitch. Like she, she'll fuck somebody up.
1: (laughs) You have to be when you are have a deficiency in some way.
0: Oh shit, yeah, man. I tell you what, because I. I used to make keyboard elf jokes to her and tell her, hey, see that tree out there? Go back with your elves and make me some cookies. And she would give me a stare that but just make my butt pucker up.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Evil damn elves.
1: Yeah. So even then, with all that going on with him, he managed to get the local girls to fall for him. Thus, he earned the moniker, the Pied Piper of Tucson. That's why
0: you were talking about that earlier this week.
1: Yeah. Well, and I get into the lyrics here in a minute. So Schmidt was raised by wealthy parents, and he grew into a narcissistic and arrogant man. He would impress the local high school girls with tokens of affection he purchased with his parents' money. He idolized Elvis Presley and tried to imitate the droopy-eyed look that Elvis had perfected. Okay,
0: everybody idolizes. Elvis okay because he's not, not dead bad Elvis yeah. you know what Elvis isn't dead though he just went home
1: I know men in black Yep. <laughs> <laughs> right and so they also say <laughs> Dennis Rodman's from another planet which I believe that
0: I believe 100% <laughs> I, you know I, I always say possibility versus probability
1: <laughs> that the, one's highly probable
0: the probability on that one goddamn near 100%
1: <laughs> yeah so, he even adopted the mystique associated with rock musicians back then. Now, this small man lived in a rather tiny cottage. There was a small man in a small little house. <laughs> That's
0: thing. He drove a small little car, and he wore small little clothes. And,
1: <laughs> and boots.
0: That's fucking awesome. That's the first thing that my, where my brain went. I know. <laughs>
1: So this cottage was paid for by his parents and on their land. It was a place that became known for its numerous parties. However, when the story broke about the crime Schmidt committed, the community of Tucson was rocked to its core. The public wasn't just unnerved by the fact that three of their teenage girls were brutally killed. They were more shaken by what the murder showed them regarding their adolescent population. The drinking parties, the sex clubs, the cover-ups for murder, blackmail, and connections to the underworld of crime.
0: Wait a minute, let's go back to the sex clubs. There's sex clubs and fucking... Really?
1: I guess back in the 60s there was... I'm
0: booking some flights. I'm booking me a flight right now.
1: My sister-in-law lives there.
0: Oh, cool.
1: My One of my brothers does, too, but we don't talk about him. Oh, okay. I thought you were <laughs> trying to set me
0: up with your sister-in-law or something. I'm all, Oh, tell me more. I mean, <laughs> don't just leave me hanging like that. No, I mean, That was my
1: she, oldest brother who passed away, his wife.
0: Does she have like a nice rack, a nice butt time? Don't just say, hey, my sister-in-law lives there. Jesus Christ, man. I'm just Sign saying, if
1: you going, I want to go, too. Oh, no. I got plans. <laughs> well, you know.
0: Very, very dirty, kinky Tucson plans.
1: <laughs> Tuxin <and> plans.
0: Uh huh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, anyways, parents suddenly changed the way they parented their children. Most began to enforce stricter rules once they learned that their children had not been behaving appropriately. They were struck with the realization that their children weren't as safe as they once thought. Those parents felt that if their kids were turning to an individual like Schmidt for the answers to the dilemmas, there was something desperately wrong with their society. I agree with that. Yeah, me too. So Schmidt was known for hanging around the local high school,
0: Scott, where the girls <laughs> piled
1: into his car. Tell me more. They would all hang out on the main drag the locals called Speedway. Needless to say, they were all, quote, easy prey for the predator. It didn't matter that the predator in question walked around in absurd-looking boots. For the kids who didn't feel like they fit in anywhere, Schmidt became their folk hero of sorts. After all, he was an older man who was wise about the world. Yes, they knew he was strange... However, in a small desert town where nothing really happened, he was able to liven up the place. Even though people said he was an interesting character, no one can pinpoint what it was about him that inspired others to follow his lead. Now, Dan Moser, the reporter for the Life article, drew an interesting comparison between Schmid's Life and a popular song from the winter of 1965. That song was actually called The Pied Piper by Crispian St. Peters, remember I had you look it up.
0: Yeah, and I still have no freaking idea who Crispian. Who the hell names a kid Crispian? Like, like, no, like for real.
1: Yeah, well, there is Crispin Glover, but it's spelled differently.
0: Yeah, no, I worked with a guy named Crispin before, and I still thought that was pretty, a pretty absurd name. <laughs> like, what the hell's wrong with your parents? Why, why don't they just name you? I don't know. Uh, Crispy crackle pop. <laughs> yeah, you know, a, a rice cake. <laughs> Something like that. Name me Crispin. That's fucking. Oh my god!
1: Oh my god! I just had this thought, and it was bad. <laughs> I was gonna say, was he Asian?
0: Did you say Asian?
1: <laughs>
0: why would he be Asian? She being? said rice cake. Oh yeah, <laughs> duh! I get it now. So I, I am so freaking out of it today. I know. I don't even know why the hell we're recording. Like seriously, I, I'm just. I'm not so much tired anymore because I have an energy drink in me, but I'm just. Just like.
1: Hazy.
0: Yeah. It's freaking weird. And then I had a good day. I went to the waxer. I got all waxed. I'm all smooth. I got to see one of my favorite girls, and that's my waxer, um, Michelle. And I'm still just blah. Ah. Probably because I have a mad crush on her.
1: Probably. And she turned you down again?
0: Mm. Someday she's going to look at me and go, okay, you fat bald fucker. I'm all yours. Today's your day. Today's your day. I'm going to ride you like a stolen horse. (laughs) I'm (laughs) like, shit, yes, you are. (laughs) I'm, put- I, 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 I'm gonna put I'll hold on, no go out to the truck and get my cowboy hat because it's a party. <laughs> uh uh-uh. right, So tell me more about this uh fucking Pied Piper so, of blowjobs, or whatever yeah, freaky is. Oh, uh,
1: some. Anyways, the lyrics to this song go, Hey, come on, babe, follow me. I'm the Pied Piper, follow me, I'm the Pied Piper, and I'll show you where it's at. Okay. Although several local girls went out with Schmid, tragically, three never returned. Keep in mind, when you're in the desert, there are plenty of places where you can hide a body.
0: Yeah, there are.
1: I know, you've said it lots of times.
0: Uh-huh, because, you know, I've spent quite a lot of time in, like, Las Vegas. And just outside of Vegas, there's a lot of fucking desert, man.
1: Yeah, that's, Bugsy Siegel figured that out. Yep. <laughs> So, on July 8, 1942, an unwed mother gave birth to a little boy. She knew she wouldn't be able to give him the life he deserved, so she put him up for adoption. On July 9th, that little boy went home with his his new parents, Charles and Catherine Schmidt, and they named him Charles Jr. Now, Charles and Catherine owned Hillcrest Nursing Home in Tucson, Arizona, so they were really well off, and they provided well for their son. Smid grew up in the Hillcrest neighborhood and gained a reputation for being a little prankster. Like most young boys, he was curious, imaginative, bright, and courteous. However, he was also indifferent to the expectations people had for him. As he got older, he took more and more chances. Some might even say he lived rather dangerously. And I can see how that would be true because reports indicate that his parents didn't interfere in his life very much when he was an adolescent. I,
0: too, like to live dangerously, by the way. I eat Taco Bell every
1: once in a while. Yeah. So it's almost as if his parents figured, hey, he's not getting into trouble. What harm is it? Right?
0: I can kind of, yeah. I can see that. I mean, yeah. It, okay. Now, think of it this way here. Your kid's getting okay grades, right? He's not like flunking out. He's getting, let's say, even de- even decent grades, uh-huh. you know, and he's a respectful kind of kid around you. Right. He's not getting arrested, you know, so I would think it'd be safe to assume that your kid's not a total fucktard yeah. and you can go, you know what? I, I kind of trust, you know, little Charlie Boo here. He, he, he's a good kid. He's not causing a whole lot of hate and discontent. Yeah. So just yeah. let him go do his thing. Yeah, yeah. Because there's nothing mm-hmm. suspicious. Now, granted, yeah. if he was like a total loser, and he's like, dude, are you smoking the marijuana? No, man. Like, <laughs> what would you say that? Because you got a bong in your hand, motherfucker. <laughs> And you're failing every single class you have because you're stoned 99.9% of the time. There's still that one that I'm shooting for, man. <laughs> but I gotta sleep. Um, you know, th- then you're going to be questioning things like, where is my retard son? Because he's obviously out there, and he's, he has no common sense, and he's smoking dope all day, smoking pot all day, and he's probably lost somewhere in, like, a fucking pancake house or out in the desert on a horse with no name. <laughs> That's all I got to say about that. What the hell you have to
1: say about that, Jenny? <laughs> so, anyways, I read a couple of articles that stated Schmidt eventually began to hate his adopted father. The older he got, the more arguments they had. Perhaps the utter lack of structure contributed to that animosity. So when Schmidt was in school and the teacher gave the students their assignments, he would make sure that he was the first one finished. It's not like he was that good because he had very little regard for how well he did on those assignments. He just had to be the first one to complete them. Throughout his life, he did have one fear. No, Scott, it wasn't snakes and it wasn't your favorite spiders.
0: No, I'm not afraid of snakes, man. I thought his favorite was spiders. I'm, like, I'm
1: afraid of both.
0: I'm a, I'd be like, Charlie, buddy, I fucking feel you there, man. Now, my son is afraid of flying spiders.
1: <laughs> and, uh, no.
0: <laughs> and by that, we mean like, Mosquito, mosquito eaters. <laughs> because that was some fucking hilarious that shit was right there. Than <laughs> yeah, you're flying we, spider. No, we we, we dig. We, I, I feel like, we, you, we, there's you no, know. There's no shame in being afraid of those flying spiders, man.
1: Especially them little, big old wings.
0: <laughs> the big wings on those flying yeah. spiders.
1: So anyways, his fear was, he was afraid of being alone. Therefore, he was always doing things for attention. When he got into high school, he joined gymnastics and became the star of the team. However, he had so much wasted potential because he was barely passing his academics.
0: Oh, what a dick. Like
1: barely. By today's standards, <laughs> he would most likely, he most likely would have been diagnosed with ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. However, back in the 60s, they didn't have that. His I te- have
0: ADOS.
1: Oh, yeah, what's that mean?
0: Attention deficit, oh shiny I get distracted really <laughs> easily. Stri- That's actually happened. I think I've told the, the story on the show when I was in band practice, and I saw a freaking squirrel outside mid-song, and I stopped. and went, guys, squirrel. And the, the, the jackasses in my band stopped and went, Really? Where? And we all stopped and watched The Squirrel.
1: <laughs> the jackasses in my band so, followed my lead. <laughs> yeah, you know,
0: exactly. You know, so I'm pretty sure the ADOS is contagious because I just, I, I gave it to everybody. I know, right? <laughs> I sneezed and everybody got ADOS.
1: <laughs> so anyway, by... Like I said, however, back in the 60s, his teacher simply stated that he, quote, seemed unable to focus his intelligence to achieve within the educational structure.
0: Uh, Yeah, that's ADD, man.
1: Yeah, pretty much. So in 1960, his junior year in high school, Schmidt led his team to the state gymnastics championship. But then in his senior year, he quit. One time, someone asked him about his success in gymnastics, and he said he thought he had psychic or hallucinogenic powers. He was able to picture things in his mind before they happened in reality. Let me give you an example. He said, quote, I'd shut my eyes and everything would seem logical, so I'd do it. Therefore, if he saw himself winning in his mind, it helped him to achieve things others struggled with, which I understand.
0: There's actually a whole business Theory in class On the power of Suggestion cogn- Suggestion and cognitive reasoning Oh Yeah uh, You Okay it, it, A brief synopsis A synopsis of the It kind of goes like If you feel or, or, or picture yourself failing You're going to fail Oh yeah However If you keep Your eye on the prize And you picture yourself succeeding You're going to work Towards that goal, harder. Right. It's, you're, you're training your brain. It's no different than training any other like muscle in your body. Right. And you'll more than likely succeed, even though you're going to have some setbacks and failures along the way. Right. You're no, more I, you're more apt to learn from them than just give up and say, "Well, fuck it, I'm out of here."
1: Yeah. No. I. I mean, I did I mean, when I was working for the security company. Our boss encouraged us to have, well, right now they call them vision boards, but, you know, just something we wanted to work towards, you know, like earn money for, you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, um, where was, oh, right before Schmidt was supposed to graduate, he broke into the machine shop at school and stole some tools. When he was caught, the school suspended him. It was just a short suspension, and they would have let him return in time to graduate. But apparently, he didn't even bother with that. He said, I quit out of boredom. Thank you. And so... um, Better? Okay. So he was 60 years old when his parents let him move out of the main house and into the small cottage on their property. They didn't expect him to get a job and pay for his own way in life either, because they paid all of his living expenses... And gave him a $300 a month allowance.
0: Jesus Christ. where were yeah. these motherfuckers then, when I was growing up? I uh, want them to adopt me.
1: No shit, yo. Then, check this out. They bought him a new car and a new motorcycle and unleashed him into the world. <laughs> what the <Yeah>. fuck? <laughs> a 16-year-old boy living on his own with a new car and a new motorcycle and no responsibilities or accountability to anyone. Okay. What could go wrong?
0: I was living on my own at 16 or 16 or 17 because um, I had gotten tired of my parents' bullshit. And but I had to pay my own way. I paid rent, I paid for my car insurance, I paid for my gas, I paid for everything. Yeah. That you know, and I and I worked and went to school.
1: Yeah. So, but you also didn't have I was gonna say, you didn't have your parents paying all your expenses, giving you an allowance and a new car and a <laughs> new motorcycle.
0: All they gave me was a hard time. I mean <laughs> Christ.
1: Exactly. So most of the time if someone wanted to find him. They just had to go to the Speedway or go to Speedway. He was usually always there drinking with his friends and trying to pick up the young girls. However, in reality, he actually was quite a loner. Um, Schmidt like that the kids. that
0: contradicts itself. You said he was, he was afraid of being alone, but yet he's a loner.
1: Exactly. It's he.
0: So. I know it does contradict itself.
1: Yeah. I was a little bit too. But he was a, always afraid of being alone. But he didn't like his public f- facade was not based in reality. You know what I mean?
0: Okay. I'm just gonna let you continue because I yeah. am so freaking confused. I'll, I'll right explain now. here in a minute.
1: <laughs> so Schmidt liked that the kids gave him the nickname Schmidty. Whenever they were around him, they just felt like life they felt that life would be exciting. Don't get me wrong, he was an odd duck. However, that didn't stop the girls from wanting to be with him. He never had a problem finding a date. This is around the time that he began to develop his image. Okay, this is where I'm talking about the makeup. He started using pancake makeup to make his skin look darker. Then he would apply a thick coating of chapstick to his lips so they looked whiter. There was also a dark mole on his left cheek that one friend noticed seemed to get bigger and bigger as time passed. It was like a prosthetic mole. Yeah. To cap off this image he was developing, he always had a toothpick in his mouth. As he talked, he would work it around like you see in the old Rebel and Cowboy movies.
0: Right, right. Like, uh, like uh, uh, James Dean. Rebel yeah, a exactly.
1: James Dean. <laughs> in order to give his lower lip a deeper pout... He would attach a clothespin to it on occasion to, like, make it hang. Ow, huh?
0: That's fucking awesome.
1: <laughs> I know, but ow.
0: Holy Have shit. Have you ever attached
1: a clothespin to, like, your ear or something just for the I've fun of it? I've attached
0: one to my lip because guys are stupid, <laughs> and I'm right up there with that. And I realized really quickly that um, that's not comfortable at all. Yeah. Like, that's no, no bueno, man.
1: No bueno. Did you? Attach a clothespin to your lip. My
0: son said that he did the same thing uh, oh. once he attached a clothespin to uh, to his lip. Yeah, maybe. All right. Yeah, Impin- I would
1: too with your dad's house.
0: <laughs> Not right, man. Y'all need Jesus.
1: <laughs> so when Schmidt arrived at the at a girl's house to pick her up for their date, if her parents eyed him questionably, he would just tell them that he wore makeup and dyed his hair because he was a musician in a rock band. Oh, okay. Yeah. However, he always played the gentleman role convincingly. Everyone was usually impressed by how courteous he always appeared to be. The weirdest thing about Schmid's look were the boots he wore. He designed them himself and had them specially made. They were black with tall a tall cowboy heel and they laced up the back with pointed toes. Then he would take tin cans and flatten them. And wrap them in rags and shove those into the heels of the boots to make himself appear taller. Yeah, you should see the boots. I mean, there's a picture of him getting arrested and they look redonkulous.
0: I want a pair of boots like that. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be awesome. (laughs) To
1: wear on stage.
0: That's my new stage boots, man. I'm going to call them my tin can boots. My my lazy tin can boots.
1: (laughs) That's right. However, he wasn't... opposed to exploiting his short stature on occasion in order to convince the ladies that he was once crippled. He said it drew their sympathy and made them, quote, easy. Now, Schmidt was best friends with a guy by the name of Paul Graff. As a teenager, Paul was involved in a holdup that led to another man's death. For that, he was sent to the reformatory unit of Fort Grant Industrial School. When he got out, he and Schmidt became roommates, during the time that Paul was living with him, Schmidt was sexually involved with numerous women. At least one of them was married to another man. And he also began practicing his practicing his guitar and taking singing lessons because he was going to make it someday. Hey,
0: man, party. You got to start somewhere.
1: Yeah, true. So another teenager named Richie Bruins... Um, Was at Fort Grant with Paul And he'll come into play a lot later He was there for a probation violation And when he got out Paul introduced him to his new friend Schmidt And the three of them became thick as thieves Apparently Schmidt was 21 years old before he was Told about his adoption That's when his adopted mother Catherine provided him with his real Mother's name According to him he took that information And found her Then he said that when he arrived at her doorstep, she told him, I didn't want you when you were born or even before you were born. And I don't want you now. Get out. Well, she's honest. Well, then he said that she just slammed the door in his face. Hmm. Now, yeah. So now he told Richie about the encounter, then said he didn't want to talk about it anymore. However, Richie later said that being rejected really seemed to affect Schmidt. And he kept his feelings to himself more after that. Now... Here's what I mean about like kind of being a loner. Because who's to say that the encounter he, he said he had with his birth mother really happened? You see, he, with Schmidt, it was hard to tell which tales were real and which were fabrications. People realized too late that he would share stories about his life with them that were creatively calculated to create the impression he wanted you to have of him. Most of them were far from the truth. So he would, he never showed his real self. Therefore, you know he was more of a loner. He nobody knew who he really was. You know what I mean? Okay. Does that make sense now? D- I haven't moved, weirdo. He keeps looking at me.
0: Cause your uh, your waves are all. I'm off. beautiful. No.
1: I'm beautiful. Oh, yeah. this was a. R- also I
0: admire your uh, self confidence.
1: Yep. This was also around the time that he became somewhat of a Don Juan in the Southwest. More often than not, he would be dating more than one, quote, serious girlfriend at any given time. In fact, there were several women that he had proposed to at the same time.
0: I call myself Dong Wan. (laughs) (laughs) Zip.
1: I'm done. (laughs) Your Dong is wrong.
0: (laughs) That's not what your mom said.
1: It's exactly what my mama said.
0: No, your mama was like, are you a plumber? Because I need you to lay some pipe. Yeah.
1: So, however, that was Schmidt's way of supplementing his allowance. He would promise to take care of the girl (coughs) forever, and she would give him what little she had. Then he would either string her along or dump her completely. When he wanted to woo a girl into his bed for some sex, he would fabricate a heartbreaking and convincing story about how deprived he was growing up, or he sometimes even stooped low enough to tell him he had one form of cancer or another and didn't have much time left to live. However, those stories he saved for the harder-to-get girls.
0: (laughs) Jesus Christ, man. Yeah. I've never had to work that hard to get laid, so...
1: Jesus so you can't great. feel his pain?
0: I cannot. I, seriously, I've never, ever, ever, ever had to work that hard to get a little yeah. tail.
1: Yeah. With the easier girls, all he had to do was make them laugh by telling one of his classic jokes or toss a flattering compliment or two her way.
0: No, that works with, uh, with yeah, low of steam girls, that's
1: easy. Yeah. It's said that on occasion, he <laughs> would even put a little salt. You're going to do this, I know it. In the corner of his eye. So that he could tear up. That way he could be more convincing when he told the object of his desire in that moment that he, quote, was overwhelmed by the privilege of being with her.
0: Oh, my God. That's fucking. Now, that part's fucking brilliant. I I know. I give him that, man. That's.
1: I know. That's some thinking right there. That's something you're going to have to do. Huh?
0: I'm going to do that the next time that uh, that I'm bitching at everybody about the budget. I'm going to put a little salt in my eye and cry. We're
1: running out of money. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Then y'all feel sorry for me.
1: And I'll be hip to your ways.
0: Fucking start working harder.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So to Schmidt, girls were just another toy he could add to his collection. When they fell for his line so quickly and completely, he lost any and all respect for them. He told one of the girls he was, quote, dating that another teenager had killed his girlfriend in a tragic car accident. He was so overcome with grief that he said he wound up killing the kid. According to the tale, he removed the guy's hands before he buried the body somewhere in the desert. Now, he told this story before he committed the murders we're going to be talking about here in a minute. However, some felt that this tale was just a fabrication that foreshadowed his future acts. However, after he was arrested, some wondered if the story was, in fact, at least partially true. Because after he was arrested, he indicated that he had committed four murders. <laughs> so perhaps this unknown man was the first. There's just no, you know, there's just nothing to identify who he that
0: was. Makes sense, yeah.
1: Yeah. So it wasn't Schmidt's. It wasn't Schmidt's tales that the local girls and boys found intriguing about him. They were enthralled by his complete and utter freedom. He could do whatever he wanted to do, whenever he wanted to do it, and didn't seem to answer to anyone. This daredevil lifestyle was what made him appear larger than life in their eyes. Well, he had to be. He was short as fuck. Yeah, he had,
0: you know, he, he had his uh, fancy ass uh, soda pop can boots. Right. <laughs> at least up the back, so. Well, you
1: know, he had to, like, appear larger in life than he really was, you know, in yeah, stature.
0: Being large and in charge right there with the soda pop boots.
1: That's right. So, um, let's say here. Well, at least that's what he thought. Almost everything Schmidt did was for show so that people would take notice of him. In fact, it's been suggested that he never would have truly put himself in danger. He just made it appear that way so that someone would pay attention and stop him. It just so happened that the activities he was so passionate about, like skydiving, motorcycle racing, were those that took him to the brink of death's door. He once made an off-handed comment: "I truly wish I could have been a great surgeon, or philosopher, or author, or anything construction, constructive." Now it's been said that if Schmidt would have applied himself to his academics, he probably could have been any of those things. However, the only thing he, thing he seemed to be able to focus on for any length of hang on, of time was his loud music and animalistic passion that had quote a hint of cruelty. He said that those were the activities that just made more sense to him. However, it's been suggested that they made more sense because they took little to no effort on his part. Considering he was all about the ladies and they seemed to be fighting over him, why should he make the effort to do anything better with his life?
0: Hey, ladies, if uh, you're looking for somebody, I'm a fat, bald fucker. And uh, (laughs) anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he's got that right. Fat, bald fucker.
0: (laughs) And if you're over the age of 65, (laughs) I'm better than AARP.
1: Oh, my goodness. I don't even have a response to that. <laughs>
0: it's, it's getting harder and harder to, to uh, shock you. <laughs> I know.
1: So, um, Aline Rowe, her name's Aline, A-L-L-E-E-N, was a 15-year-old sophomore at Palo Verde High School. Her mom and dad had recently divorced, and her mom decided that Tucson would be a fresh start for her and her children. They had just moved to the area the previous year. Unfortunately for Aline, she had become friends with a 19-year-old girl named Mary French shortly after her arrival. Mary was Schmidt's lover at the time. Now, this is what I didn't understand: is Mary's 19 years old, but she was still in high school. So
0: she got held back a year, man. Obviously, Mary's a dumbass.
1: <laughs> that's well, Schmidt's her boyfriend. I'd say yes.
0: There you go, man. <laughs> Look at all the facts. I
1: know. Now, after Aline moved to Tucson, (laughs) before she made any friends, she would go for walks in the desert and collect stones that she thought looked unusual. It was a relaxing time for her because she thought the hot sun made her feel more alive. She had dreams of becoming an oceanographer, and and considering she had above-average grades, she could have made it happen. Now, Aline was a beautiful, blue eyed, blonde haired teenager, which is exactly what drew Schmidt's attention. On the afternoon of May 31st, 1964, Schmidt told Mary that he ha- she had to convince Aline to go out with John Saunders, another one of Schmidt's friends. When Mary talked to Aline that day, the young girl declined the invitation. However, Schmidt refused to take no for an answer. He proceeded to call Mary's house several times throughout the afternoon to tell her she had to make the date happen that night. Every time Mary asked Aline, the young girl turned her down, saying she just couldn't do it. Alline said that she had an important test to take at school the next day that she had to study for. However, a little later in the evening, there was a knock at her door. When she opened it, there stood Schmidten with John by his side. Earlier that day, Schmidt was talking about how he wanted to, quote, kill someone. More specifically, he wanted to kill a young girl. According to testimony later, he indicated that he wanted to know what it was like to take someone's life and to, quote, see if he could get away with it. You know, like everything else he did in life.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense.
1: He even came up with a list of potential victims, and and Rose name was on that list he talked about how he would lure her into the empty desert beat her over the head with a rock and then bury her where she wouldn't be found when mary heard what he wanted to do rather than attempt to talk him out of it she just said that she had tried to persuade alene to go out that night and failed that's when he told her that she had to find him another girl then to say he was being relentless would be an understatement quote he wanted to kill someone now that very night According to Mary, she tried to find another suitable candidate, but couldn't find someone willing to go out that night. She knew Aline was at another friend's house, so she went over there in an effort to convince the girl to go out with John. This time, Aline finally agreed to do it. However, she wouldn't be able to leave the house until her mother left for work. Okay, because her mom was a night nurse. Now, Mary hurried to tell Schmidt that she had finally convinced Aline to go out with them that night. He and John started preparing for the evening. They went and got a shovel and made sure to put it in the trunk of their car before they went over to Aline's house. It was still kind of early, so they drove around aimlessly until they knew her mom had gone to work. When they arrived, Mary walked up to her bedroom window and tapped on it to let the girl know that they were there. Aline came out of the house wearing her bathing suit with a yellow checkered shift over it. You know, like, like a bathing suit cover, basically. Oh, okay, yeah. And curlers in her hair. She didn't want to alert her siblings that she was sneaking out, so she was carrying her shoes rather than wearing them. Once they were all piled into Schmidt's car, Mary sat in front with her boyfriend while Aline and John got into the back seat. The young teenager was unprepared for what was to come. Schmidt drove out into the desert somewhere by Golf Links Road because it was a place he frequented often to make out with girls and drink with the guys. After they arrived at their destination, they all got out of the car and walked into the desert for a distance until they found a wash where they could just sit and talk. Now, a desert wash is a North American desert biome that occurs in the flat bottom areas of canyons or drainages that lack water near the surface for most of the year. And due to the way they are set up, they are prone to severe flooding periodically. Now, they were out there for a little while when Schmidt turned to Mary and asked her to walk back to the car to get the radio. Mary got up to do as she was asked, and he walked with her. The two had walked back toward the car for a distance when, according to reports, they suddenly heard Aline scream out. Okay? That's when Schmidt told Mary just to get back to the car. That he took off running back to the wash. According to reports, when he got back to where they had been, John was struggling with Aline. So Schmidt ordered him to quote, "Put his hand over her mouth to shut her up." It's obvious Schmidt was prepared for the event because he took a piece of guitar string out of his pocket and tied Aline's arms behind her back. The She's entire Christ, man. I know. The entire time, Aline begged them to tell her why they were hurting her and schmidt looked her in the eyes and said mary wants us to do it she hates you god damn yeah now wouldn't the guitar string like cut into her skin
0: yeah i was just i was thinking about that because like like even my the thinner strings that i use which are nine gauge strings (coughs) the uh the low e string is the biggest one still if you're tying someone up with that it's gonna cut
1: yeah, that's what I thought.
0: Yeah, and if you're using the, the high E string, that's just a really thin piece of wire, man. That's going to... You're, you're,
1: yeah, you're almost like a garage, damage. huh?
0: Yeah, it would, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally.
1: That's what I was thinking. So... Um He then took her further down into the wash as she struggled against both her bindings and her captors. And Schmidt finally came to a stop and told John to remove Aline's bathing suit. However, since her hands were tied, he couldn't get the suit off over her arms. So Schmidt reached down and untied her, then placed her yellow shift on the ground and told her to lie down. Aline was afraid for her life, so she did what she was told. Once she was on the ground, Schmidt turned to John and said, go ahead. John tried to do something, but since she was crying so much, he said he wasn't able to kiss her, so he so he became frustrated. I was confused at that point because I didn't think guys really bothered with that part when they're raping a girl.
0: You wouldn't think.
1: Yeah. So, seeing his friend's irritation, Schmidt told him just to take a walk. A few minutes later, Schmidt called out for him to return when John got back to the air. Er- area Aline was standing up and trying to put her bathing suit back on she turned away from the two men and started walking away from them deeper into the wash and John and Schmid followed close behind with her back turned to them um, Schmid bent over and grabbed a sharp pointed rock and tried to hand it to John John knew he wouldn't be able to follow through with the plan so he handed it back to Schmid right away That's when Schmid told him just to go back to the car to get Mary. However, when John told Mary what Schmid wanted her, she refused to get out of the car. John decided just to return to the area by himself. He said that once he got back to where Schmid and Aline were, she was lying on the ground face up. He said her face and head were covered in blood and Smitty's hands were bloody as well and blood covered the front of his shirt. According to John, Schmidt saw him and demanded to know where Mary was. And John informed that she was still at the car. So he ran back and she said um, that she could tell that he was, quote, very excited. And he told her, we killed her. I love you very much.
0: <laughs> what the fuck, man? Yeah, right?
1: <laughs> so then riding the wave of euphoria, he went to the trunk, grabbed the shovel and took Mary back to the murder site with him. So he told her that John was the one that killed the girl. He must have been convincing because she got out of the car and followed him. Now, when they arrived, he handed the shovel to John and told him to start digging before he dropped to the ground and began digging the sand with his spare hands. Yeah, I mean, I could just picture it in my head. Soon, Mary joined the process. Once they had a shallow grave carved out in the desert, Schmid grabbed Aline's body by the hands and told Mary to grab her feet and they placed her in the hole and that they had just dug. And before they covered her with sand, they threw her yellow checkered shift on top of her. Once she was covered, they dug another hole and buried her curlers there. And then Schmidt dug a third hole, took off his bloody shirt, threw it along with the shovel inside and then buried it all with his hands. Yeah, then... Once the three of them felt they had buried all the evidence, they returned to the car, wiped it down, and removed any of Aileen's prints. They concocted a story they were going to tell everyone. All three of them agreed to say that Aline had accepted the offer to go out on a date with John that night. However, when they went by her house, she wasn't home. Once they had their story down, they drove away and dropped Mary off at home. Now, Norma was Aline's mother, and when she returned from work and realized her daughter wasn't there, she tried everything she could think of to find the girl. When her efforts failed, she contacted the authorities. She told them that she worked nights as a nurse, and when she left home the night before, Aline was in bed with her curlers in her hair. In the missing persons report, Norma stated that when she got home from work, her daughter was just gone and she had left her purse behind. In fact, it seemed like the only thing that was missing from the girl's room was the bathing suit suit and shift she had on the day before. Then Norma proceeded to tell the police about something that Aline had talked to her about. Apparently, according to Aline, she said the high school had a sex club. And she said that Aline told her that other youths were involved in this club and they would do drugs and engage in various perversions. She indicated it was some kind of organized prostitution ring. Right? was that in my high school? Okay. <laughs> Aren't you wondering the same thing?
0: No. No, I'm not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> After hearing what Norma had to say, the officer in charge stated this was one of the most far-fetched tales he'd ever heard. Therefore, he didn't take any of what she said seriously. However, he did investigate her claims and failed to come up with anything that indicated such a club existed. <laughs> I said, so my side note here is perhaps this was the 60 sexual version of Fight Club. First rule, you do not talk about sex club. Second rule, you do not talk about sex club. Right? So the authorities Damn. questioned All of Aline's friends Including Mary, Schmidt, and John Before they went to answer any questions The police had Schmidt took Mary and John out for a drive To make sure they rehearsed their alibi Norma didn't care what the police said She continued to make desperate attempts To find her daughter About a week after Aline went missing Her father called Norma Because he had a dream about their daughter The night before In his dream she had been murdered And was left alone in the desert Norma just knew that his dream was a message from Aline. She continued to hound the authorities. However, they kept trying to convince her that until they had more evidence to indicate she was out there somewhere, they weren't going to make any effort to search the desert. After all, they wouldn't even know where to look, and the area was so vast. So basically, they just wrote her off as a runaway.
0: Okay, that makes sense, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um... Needless to say, Norma didn't give up. She was relentless, as every parent should be. I would move mountains to find my kid if he were missing, even with the difficulties we have. All she wanted to do was find her daughter and find out what happened to her. And by March of 1965, when uh, neither Aline nor her remains turned up, Norman became even more desperate. She knew the local authorities weren't going to help her without more information. Hell, they just kept telling her that Aline was just another teenage runaway. However, she knew her daughter better than that. So she took matters into her own hands. She personally went to the Arizona Attorney General's office as well as the local department of the FBI and tried to get them to help her. When they told her they couldn't do anything until they had more evidence, Norma didn't give up. She called all of the newspapers and television news affiliates to get her missing daughter's information out there, just in case somebody knew something. They even put in a tip line so that someone could make an anonymous report and even so, no new leads came out. In one last desperate attempt to find something that would tell her where her daughter was, she contacted a local psychic. Even that turned out to be a dead end. Not not long after that, the missing person's case of Aline Roe was buried under a pile of police files where it turned cold and dusty like the desert where her remains were left. God damn, I know, oh, right?
0: man. That's fucked up.
1: So, now, Schmid, not long after Arlene's murder, John Saunders joined the United States Navy. He was barely out of town before Richie Burns replaced him as Schmidt's closest confidant and friend. Because Richie was out of, you know, he came home again out of the detention center. Didn't take long before Richie was telling Schmidt about all of his personal things. Um, around that same time, Richie even began to dress and act like Schmid. He even made comments about them being long lost brothers. It didn't really ha- he didn't really have anyone else to look up to in his life. And he'd already been in and out of Fort Grant twice and never made it past the 10th grade. All in all, he was just a lost misfit looking for a place to fit in. Richie didn't have very many social skills. The only f- the only four girls he ever dated didn't stick with him very long because of his social ineptitude. He idolized Schmidt and wanted to emulate the older man. So Schmidt allowed him to tag along. On one occasion, Schmidt told Richie about the night he, John, and Mary took Aline Roe out to the desert. He went into graphic detail about how he'd murdered the young teenage girl. And then the three of them buried her and all the evidence out in the wash. However, since Richie was used to the man's tall tales already, he didn't believe him. Right? He just blew it off.
0: It makes sense, yeah.
1: Yeah. And so where am I?
0: Oh, uh, you're right here recording. I,
1: I know I was lost my place on Oh, I page. thought you like
0: lost your place like didn't know where you were currently.
1: Yeah, you know, sometimes. <laughs> so sometime in July of nineteen sixty four, Schmidt saw a sixteen year old girl swimming in a pool somewhere near Speedway. He was immediately drawn to the thin wand teenager because that was his type. The girl's name was Gretchen Fritz. When Schmidt told others that he had noticed her, some of the boys told him she was trouble for anyone who got involved with her.
0: Sounds I like my kind of girl. Huh? Sounds like my kind of girl.
1: You know, I know, huh? <laughs> so I already talked about how Schmidt lived life dangerously. Therefore, what others would have considered a warning, he took as a challenge. His interest in the young blonde teenager only intensified. The same day that she captures it, captured his attention... He waited around the pool and followed her home. She lived in a very affluent neighborhood and later when he tried to describe the house to others, she said, I mean he said it was a mansion. Now, Gretchen's father was a cardiothoracic, a heart and chest physician at a local hospital, and he also sat on the board for Union Bank. People described Gretchen as a black sheep or misfit in the family because of her rather odd ideals. She often treated boys with contempt and once told a friend that, quote, she admired prostitutes for their ability to charge for what boys expected for free. Now, to say she had her own kind of trouble would be putting it lightly. Here's what others have said about Gretchen. See if you can spot a pattern. One of the teachers at the private school she attended said she was, quote, a psychopathic liar. When she got into trouble at school that warranted a suspension before signing the order, the headmaster suggested that Gretchen's parents get her psychiatric treatment. One of her friends also stated that at times she would get so jealous that it was as if she were psychotic. Do you see a pattern? No. No, you don't see a psychotic nope. illusion. No, you Nothing know what? Nothing to see here. You know what? I know you don't see it because... That's your dating pool. She's
0: kind of making me hot just talking about her.
1: <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> you always go for the the psych <clears throat> nut jobs.
0: <clears throat> Dang right, man? It's a you know. I live dangerously. Not only do I occasionally eat Taco Bell for no damn reason, I uh, you know want to wonder if I'm going to wake up in the morning or not.
1: <laughs> well, you know. Now Schmidt was a little intimidated by the thought of meeting her. You know, because she came from an affluent area, all that. Um, so, excuse me, I put a piece of cheese in my mouth thinking you were going to talk for a minute, and you didn't. So, um, so, he developed an unorthodox ruse to introduce himself to her. He went over to her house one day with a box full of pots and pans. He walked up to the door carrying them, and when she answered, he told her he was a traveling salesman. If I didn't know where the story was going, I would have considered this a romantic gesture, wouldn't you?
0: (laughs) I thought that he was going to look angry. Get cooking, bitch. (laughs) Hungry. (laughs) This dinner's not going to cook itself, just saying.
1: (laughs) So Schmid maintained the ruse until he felt he had sufficiently broken the ice with young Gretchen. Then he finally told her that he had made the whole thing up in an effort to meet her face to face. After hearing that he had lied to her, Gretchen... This is the order it happened. Gretchen laughed. Then she burst out crying. And then she suddenly stopped and said, want a cocktail?
0: Hey, I'm already in love with Gretchen. Yeah,
1: she was 16.
0: Hey, works for me, man.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he was so utterly confused by her reaction, but completely turned on by it as well. That was the beginning of what would be a true fatal attraction. As the two began getting to know each other better, Gretchen confided some personal information. She told him she was with child and that her family didn't even love her. She also told him that she had a brother-in-law with ties to the mafia. Gretchen thought he was like all the other boys she had gone out with. So when she finally had sex with him, she assumed she would never see him again. She was wrong. They began dating, and even though Schmidt told her they were, quote, exclusive, he had already proposed marriage to both Mary French, as well as another girl named Darlene Kirk. He had even gone out and bought them both cheap-ass engagement rings.
0: (laughs) Did he buy them,
1: or did he just put a quarter in a machine and hope for the best? Who knows?
0: What's wrong with that?
1: You know... I have so much to say. No time. No time. However, he had no intentions of marrying either one of them. He just wanted them to go out and work and deposit their paychecks in the bank. An account that was set up with him as an authorized user with complete access to the funds. Eventually, Darlene figured out what was going on and she gave her ring back to Schmidt. Rather than cut off all ties with him, she began dating Richie. Therefore, she was still within the orbit of his gravitational pull. Now, Schmidt and Gretchen argued a lot, mostly about the other girls he was dating. Not to mention, she did not care for Richie at all, and the two of them never got along. Therefore, it didn't take long before Schmidt decided to end their relationship. Apparently, he tried to tell her it was over on several occasions, but each time, he failed. When Richie noticed that Schmidt couldn't shake the girl, he asked him why this girl was getting to him the way no other girl had. That's when Schmidt told him... That she knew one of his darkest secrets, the same one Richie knew. He had killed Aline Rowe. You see, when Schmidt tried to break up with her the first time, he didn't realize that she was truly psychotic like people warned him. She turned into a teenage girl scorned. You know how they say, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned? Oh, yeah. Well, that is nothing compared to the hormones of a teenage girl on a jealous warpath. I'm just saying. I've been there. You know. You I dated was a teenage girl once. Oh, I thought you were
0: dating a teenage girl. No. Okay, no, I'm understanding now. <laughs> currently.
1: I was a teenage girl.
0: Dating one currently. No.
1: <laughs> Shut up. I'm going to kick you both.
0: Once upon a time in Iowa.
1: I just, you know what? What happens in Iowa stays in Iowa.
0: Thank God, because <laughs> I was freaky enough to begin with.
1: <laughs> At some point while they were dating, Gretchen got her hands on Schmidt's journal. Apparently, he said, Dear Diary, and stole it. In that journal, he had written entries in graphic detail about how he had murdered a six-year-old boy before burying him in the desert somewhere, not to mention how he had killed Aline before he and his other two friends buried her remains in the wash. When he realized that she had this information and was using it to blackmail him into staying with her, he started to get very annoyed. He even discussed the issue out loud with Richie in an effort to find a way to hurt her. One of Schmidt's ideas was for Richie to take some acid and throw it in her face to disfigure her. However, he backed out of that plan when he realized that he really wasn't all that sexually or physically attracted to her anymore. Right? Then one day... Gretchen found out about one of Schmidt's many, quote, engagements, and she became even more furious. That little tidbit of information just made the already bad situation even worse. That's when he knew he had to figure out a way to get away from Psycho Sally. In September of 1965, Gretchen's family went on vacation, which meant she was supposed to be out of town for a while. He figured since she was gone, he could relax and he threw a bunch of parties. However, she showed up at his house unexpectedly one night and all hell broke loose.
0: Yeah, think.
1: Yeah. Gretchen started screaming at Schmidt in front of everyone. Within minutes, Mary French arrived and made the announcement that she was pregnant with his child. Then she told him that he better marry her and act like a proper father to the baby she was going to be having. When Gretchen heard Mary say that she was pregnant with Schmidt's kid, she announced that she too was pregnant. Then she turned to Schmidt and asked him, "What do you plan on doing about it?" They continued to argue back and forth for a while, then Gretchen asked him to run away with her so they could elope. Sh- since Schmidt thought thought of himself as a quote true ladies man, he wasn't too enthusiastic about marrying anyone in particular. When he told her he didn't want to do that, she ran out of the house yelling over her shoulder as she slammed out the door, Smitty, Smitty, you rat, you dirty little rat.
0: You dirty rat, you told the police on me.
1: Yeah, the mock of the squealer.
0: The mock of the squealer.
1: Later that same night, on August 16th, Gretchen and her 13-year-old sister, Wendy, left their house at approximately 7.30 p.m. to go to the movies. They wanted to see the new Elvis Presley film, which I've never heard of. This one, "Tickle Me."
0: Well, I'm, not, I'm like "Tickle Me," Elmo.
1: Well, apparently never, Elvis had a film called "Tickle Me." I, I didn't even know.
0: I gotta fucking. I'm gonna Google that shit. I've never fucking. I, I thought I, know, I saw all never, the Elvis. Films. I just,
1: that's what I thought too. But anyways, when the sisters didn't come home that night. Like they were supposed to, Dr. Fritz went out and hired a private detective to locate his daughters. Some might wonder why he didn't just go to the authorities, but think about it. Gretchen was already known as a troublemaker. She was suspected in several minor crimes by that point, and it would have been easy for the police to write her off as a runaway. If Wendy and her were really close, it's not beyond the scope of reason for people to assume they ran away together. Therefore, his reason makes complete sense to me. It makes even more sense when you remember how the authorities handled the disappearance of Aline Rowe, a responsible young teenager with a bright future ahead of her. You could probably imagine how they would have handled the missing teenager who was known for bucking the system.
0: All right, check this out. Okay. Tickle Me is a real fucking Elvis, Elvis movie? movie. I'm trying to read this because I'm waiting for my new glasses to come in. It says one time rodeo standout Lonnie Beale, quote Elvis Presley, needs a job. So the slick Playboy heads to a dude ranch that caters to wealthy women owned by Vera Redford, Redford Julia Adams. <clears throat> there, Lonnie meets the attractive Pam Merritt, uh, who is played by Jocelyn Lane. They fall in—they uh, fall for each other, and Lonnie discovers Pam's uh, connection. Oh, there's a bunch more shit on her. Okay. Connection to, to a treasure map. That might lead to riches buried in a ghost town.
1: Wow. That actually sounds pretty interesting.
0: That sounds fucking ridiculous.
1: <laughs> but you know, there's got to be a couple songs and all that shit in there.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, ain't nothing like a dude rancher breaking out into song.
0: Oh, that's true. But there's a difference between dude ranch music and fucking Elvis Presley. Like a huge difference. Right.
1: <laughs> a huge difference. Okay, Dr. Fritch hired a detective named William Helig. It didn't take long for Helig to locate Gretchen's car, a red and white Pontiac Le Mans, abandoned behind the Flamingo Hotel near a speedway. Remember the Le Mans? Oh, yeah. Yeah. When Helig inspected the inside of the car, he saw that there were small traces of mud and bits of gravel on the floor of the front passenger's passenger and back seats when he looked at the car speedometer there were 60 miles on there that couldn't be accounted for not to mention that someone had also disconnected it for some reason now okay I don't want to sound like an idiot but I didn't even know that was possible yeah since I don't like to put information out there I don't know it's factual I looked it up apparently it's easier to do in older cars Mm -hmm. but it's still possible to do in new cars however if you get caught it is a federal crime. So I do not recommend anyone do this to their own vehicle. Besides, although it doesn't look like you're racking up the miles, it still tracks in the computer system. So there's no point.
0: Oh, damn it.
1: I know, huh? Apparently people (laughs) would do it when they were traveling. Like people who uh, towed the car behind an RV or something. Right. They would disconnect the speedometer so that, you know. It makes
0: sense. It makes sense. Yeah.
1: So Gretchen's purse was lying on the open inside the vehicle. Inside the purse, they found the following items. Two ticket stubs for Tickle Me, starring Elvis Presley, $20 in cash, Gretchen's card keys, and a business card for Schmitt's, of Schmitz from an upholstery business he opened, but it was a failure. Now, looked walked around the area and talked to people at the hotel to ask them if they knew anything about the car and when it was parked there. Nobody he spoke to with remembered seeing the car before he pointed it out to them. Therefore, his canvassing was a complete bust. After that, he didn't turn up any other good leads. Um, uh-uh. Get your nose away from there. Um, when he talked to people who knew Gretchen and Wendy who were also at the movie that night, he turned up little, turned up little information there either. Reports indicate that friends of the sisters had seen them at the Cactus Drive-In that night to see the Elvis movie. While they were there, one of Gretchen's friends told her that Schmidt was throwing a party. Police reports from that evening indicate the authorities received a call about two girls who matched the description of Gretchen and Wendy hitchhiking south on Interstate 19 or Highway 20 towards Nogales on the border of Mexico. Apparently, the hitchhiking girls were seen getting into a car heading towards Mexico. When Helig went down to Mexico following that lead, he showed pictures of Gretchen and Wendy around the border towns. Several people were quite sure they'd seen the girls getting on a bus going into Hermosillo. And Helig continued traveling through known tourist towns in Mexico until he came to the heart of the country following leads of the two girls who were seen in various locations. However, nothing substantial came of his efforts. By that point, with all the reports of sightings in Mexico, the local authorities did just write them off as runaways. Now, Richie Bruns even believed that's, that's what happened to the Fritz sisters. It was the most believable explanation for their sudden disappearance. However, it wasn't long before he learned the truth from Schmidt's own mouth about what really happened to Gretchen and Wendy. And that is the end of part one.
0: All right. Remember, you can send us an email at BruinH at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check out the website at www.TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Just type in at Brutal Nation. We'll pop right up for you. This show's copyright 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. We will see you guys on our Freaky Fetish Friday on the tomorrow. Bye-bye, you sick boys and girls.
1: (laughs) Bye, everybody.